Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm Shannon Paulus. Hey everyone, welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We are recording this on the afternoon of Tuesday, August 13th. On today's show, we'll talk about gun safety technology and whether so-called smart guns could help reduce firearm deaths in the U.S. Our guest will be Cassandra Kafasi, Deputy Director at the Johns Hopkins Center for Gun Policy and Research. She studies policies, procedures, and practices that improve safety and prevent injury. She's also a gun owner herself. After the interview, my colleague Aaron Mack will join me for Don't Close My Tabs, where we'll talk about the best things we saw on the web this week. That's all coming up on If Then. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Now let's turn to the gun safety debate. Today, we're exploring whether smart guns, also called personalized guns, could potentially reduce the number of firearm deaths in the United States. You know how fancy iPhones have facial recognition so that only their owners can unlock them? That's kind of the idea with smart guns. They could unlock via fingerprint, or maybe they'll only fire if a wearable bracelet is within a few feet. In theory, if you have a personalized gun, no one would be able to steal it and use it, and your kids wouldn't be able to accidentally fire it. Presidential candidates Joe Biden and Andrew Yang are both calling for the use of smart guns. Here's Biden. We should have smart guns. No gun should be able to be sold unless your biometric measure could pull that trigger. But could technology really solve our gun violence problem? Here to walk us through it is Cassandra Kafasi, Deputy Director at the Johns Hopkins Center for Gun Policy and Research. More specifically, she's an injury epidemiologist focused on policies, procedures, and practices that improve safety and prevent violence. She's also a gun owner herself. Cass, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So you recently did a survey of some 1,500 gun owners on whether they would purchase a personalized gun. Um, What prompted you to do that survey, and what did you find? The survey was part of a broader effort to get a better understanding of how gun owners think and feel about a range of topics. The survey included how they behave in the private market, how they store their guns, in addition to the desirability of personalized guns. And we found that while the majority, over 70% of gun owners think that these guns should be available for purchase, they were very unlikely to want to purchase one themselves. Only about 18% expressed interest in purchasing one of these guns when we asked them about the added cost. And how much would that added cost be for a personalized gun? So we asked uh, kind of a lower end cost. So we asked if they would be willing to buy a gun with this technology if it added $300 to the cost. Although right now, some of the models that are available, we think will actually be more like 1200 additional dollars. 
but we we wanted to ask what we think is um, a more reasonable cost that we would get to sort of with economies of scale as more um, models become available or as they sort of permeate the market and technology gets better, they might uh, be cheaper. And so we wanted to ask kind of a realistic amount. Would you want to get a gun with this technology if it cost an extra $300 and less than 20% of current gun owners said that they'd be willing to pay for that? Were you surprised by that finding? We had seen some uh, research by some other folks that asked a little bit more broad of a question. They said, if a personalized gun was available on the market, would you be willing to consider purchasing it? They didn't ask about cost and they didn't ask sort of about likelihood. Um, And generally in survey research, if you just ask about support without that associated cost, you get higher levels. And they saw about uh, 60% support for people being willing to consider. And we wanted to try to get to that more um, depth of support. How likely is somebody to pay for something? Um, and that's why we we found much lower results. Not all that surprising. Uh, the gun industries have actually been asking their you know, purchasers of their weapons for a long time if they'd be interested. And our findings are very consistent with the findings of those surveys done by gun manufacturers. So I want to back up a little bit. And I don't own a gun right now, but say I were interested in buying a personalized gun. Um, If I went out to do that today, what options would I have available to me? Basically none. (laughs) Um, (laughs) They're not currently available for purchase in the U.S. market. And so you would have to try to find someone, uh, a licensed dealer who could lawfully import one from a German manufacturer, for example, um, and then then try to purchase one. The challenge there uh, for years, New Jersey has had a law on the books that says as soon as a personalized gun is sold anywhere in the United States, all new handguns sold in New Jersey must be personalized. They actually just recently changed that law. I'm not sure if it's been signed um, actually into effect yet, but they modified that law that just said, now it says um, once a personalized gun is sold, then they have to be available in New Jersey, which I think is folks were concerned that that law was preventing the introduction of personalized guns into the market. Um, So currently, no options, but maybe soon with the change in the New Jersey law. Mm -hmm. Because it seems like 18% 18 of people would purchase a smart gun for an extra fee. You know, that's not everybody, but that, to me as a kind of outside observer, does seem like a significant chunk of gun owners. Absolutely. Uh, The extra thing to consider when it comes to personalized guns is what we call harm reduction in public health. So substituting a less harmful device uh, for something that is more harmful. And the challenge with personalized guns is that we unfortunately won't be able to wave a magic wand and make all guns personalized. Um, And to date, there isn't a plan to, you know, buy back quote unquote, dumb guns um, if you buy a smart gun. And so we're still going to have all of these traditional guns in the market. And when we looked at sort of storage behaviors of gun owners, people who expressed an interest in purchasing a smart gun were 50% more likely to already store all of their guns safely, sort of limiting that exposure that we're concerned about. And so the benefit of introducing these guns might not be as much 
as we would expect. And I certainly don't, I don't want to come across as seeming like I think personalized guns are a bad idea. I just simply think that we need to give some additional consideration to how quickly they will permeate the market, um, who's interested in buying them, and what might happen to our exposure to guns in homes that don't currently own them if they suddenly think that guns, these guns are safe and are bringing a gun into the home when they never would have previously because of what we know about household level gun ownership and exposure to gun injuries. Yeah, you noted in a press release about the survey that um, the introduction of personalized guns in the U.S. market could actually increase the number of firearms in a home. So that was based on some interviews that have been conducted with manufacturers, designers of smart guns, um, not by us, by others. And in those interviews, these manufacturers said, um, recognizing that there is a lower level of interest among current gun owners um, and recognizing that gun ownership is declining overall, they're intentionally targeting people who don't currently own guns, who might bring them into their home if they thought they were safe. And we know from a number of studies that having a gun in the home can increase your risk of homicide and suicide by as much as three times. And so our concern is that if we have more people exposing themselves to firearms, while we may see um, some benefits in terms of fewer unintentional shootings by children and fewer teen suicides, we may see more people um, dying from firearm suicide because the majority of firearm deaths are adult suicides and adult authorized users wouldn't be prevented from using those guns in a suicide. Um, you noted that having a gun in the home increases uh, the risk of homicide and suicide threefold. I'm wondering if you have any numbers on how much that risk increases when the gun is a smart gun or if the gun were to be a smart gun since they're not available right now. Yeah, that's a really great question. So we're in the process of trying to do some modeling um, to estimate that. The challenge is that uh, we don't know what the uptake will be. And again, we don't know uh, what the uh, substitution would be, who who may buy a smart gun instead of a traditional gun, who is going to buy a gun anyway. Um, but when we look at overall household level gun ownership, if we increase that level of gun ownership by even 1% across the country, we negate any public safety benefits um, because, again, the highest risk of gun death would be um, adult firearm suicide. And then also we see um, concerns about domestic violence, intimate partner homicide. Um, lots of folks argue that personalized guns would render a stolen gun inoperable, which is absolutely true, um, assuming that the activation device like a like an RFID bracelet um, were stored separately or if the gun operated with a fingerprint it would make those stolen guns basically like a paperweight. Um, mm -hmm. The challenge there is, again, the diffusion into the market. Um, who's going to be buying these guns? How are they going to be storing them um, in the home? And my guess would be that it's going to take a little bit of time for there to be enough of these guns that we would see any kind of impact on guns that are stolen and their use in the underground market. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more from Cassandra Kafasi, Deputy Director at the Johns Hopkins Center for Gun Policy and Research. Apple. 
Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. I'm also wondering if it's possible to hack a smart gun and if you keep a gun on hand, say, for self-defense, if you could get into a situation in which someone is effectively disarming you. Um, Yeah, so you can go on YouTube and you can see folks that have created sort of functional smart guns or personalized guns, and they can be very quickly defeated um, with magnets and other kinds of devices. Um, The other thing I should mentioned. So uh, when we were designing our national survey, we did focus groups with gun owners to try to get a sense of what kinds of questions we should be asking in our national survey and the kinds of wording and phrasing we should use and also what some of their concerns were. And we heard from a number of folks that they were concerned about the technology working uh, when they wanted it to. And that came out in our national survey as well, that more than 70% um, of people were concerned about the gun working when they wanted it to. And folks, you know, some of, some of these folks in Texas were maybe um, a little bit more doomsday than others, but they were concerned about um, EMPs, right? If there were to be some terrible event that happened, basically the guns being disabled with some kind of blast. Um, And so that was a significant concern among some of these folks. I think this was also a plot point in the um, recent Fast and Furious Presents Hobbs and Shaw movie, where they have this army that has smart guns and they all get disabled at the same time. Um, I haven't I haven't seen the movie yet, but yeah, that, that sounds about on, on point with um, some of the concerns that they were uh, expressing in terms of being able to override the technology in, in some way. Uh, we already know that some of the less robust storage devices like trigger locks and and uh, sort of some of the other external locks can be defeated really quickly. So I don't mean to imply that this is only an issue for personalized guns. This is an issue for safe storage broadly. Um, But certainly this technology issue is one uh, that we need to be thinking about in terms of if it's going to work when it's needed and how easy it is to defeat the technology or make the gun inoperable. Um, I wanted to also ask about other features of guns that don't necessarily involve such sophisticated technology. Can guns be made safer? Are guns being made safer? Is there like a specific model that I can say like, okay, I want a gun, but like I want the safest gun on the market? So I think, you know, there there are different kinds of guns, right? Uh, Long guns, which are rifles and shotguns, and then handguns. Um, Most of the I think actually all of the designs of personalized guns are handguns, which are the majority of guns that are used in crime. And so I think that's probably why um, handguns have been the focus. So I'll just share a few pieces of advice in terms of handguns. I think there are models of firearms, handguns that are available now that have a built-in locking mechanism where there's a special key that's inserted into the side of the gun and you can lock it and it renders the gun non-functional. Um, and that's not something that you can 
break off the gun like a trigger lock. Um, and so that can be a beneficial sort of feature that can help you store the gun more safely. Um, guns that have safeties tend to be a, a good choice or at a minimum, um, there are multi-action triggers where you have to sort of pull the trigger back in a particular way to make it work. Um, that can be a good feature. But at the end of the day, regardless of the type of firearm you have, whether it's a rifle, a shotgun, or a handgun, there are inexpensive and effective safe storage devices. And if we can get folks to recognize the responsibility that comes with the right of gun ownership and store all those guns safely, we can reduce theft, which is a source into the underground market, and we can reduce um, child and adolescent injury through unintentional shootings and suicides, and also reduce access to guns by dangerous or high-risk people who may be in our home and shouldn't have access to those guns. How do you foresee that kind of information getting to gun owners more effectively than it is now? So particularly with regard to safe storage, we that was part of our national survey, and we asked gun owners, who's the best messenger to talk to you about safe storage? And they overwhelmingly said they wanted to hear about safe storage from groups that they perceived to have experience with guns. Law enforcement was at the top of the list. There was also hunting and outdoor organizations, active duty military, military veterans, and also the NRA. The NRA has a long history of promoting safe storage. They have a, a great website, NRA Family, that's all about guns in the home and how to store them safely to make sure that kids or other unauthorized individuals don't gain access to them. So there's a variety of options and a variety um, of folks who can deliver that message, but it's got to come from someone that is perceived to be knowledgeable about guns. We're going to take another quick break, and then we'll continue our conversation with Cassandra Kafasi. So we have a couple of presidential candidates talking about smart guns right now. Do you think that that's something that they should be at all focused on? And if not, what should they be focusing on? I think if these candidates are going to be focused on personalized guns, it should be one part of a multi-policy or multi-program solution. I think in addition to focusing on gun design, we need to think about other features like the availability of large capacity magazines that equip someone to fire a lot of rounds without having to reload. We need to think about extreme risk protection orders that temporarily through due process uh, separate an at-risk individual from their firearms. And then we also need to think about having a better system for regulating acquisitions. So we need to have a comprehensive background check system that is complemented by a purchaser licensing system where individuals are applying for and obtaining a license through local law enforcement. These policies are some of the most impactful at reducing a range of gun deaths. So you're a gun owner yourself. I wonder if you've ever um, wished that you could buy a smart gun right now. I have, actually. I have kids in the home. I have a 13-year-old and an almost 12-year-old at home, and we teach them about gun safety. They're learning how to shoot safely. Um, but we also store all of our guns safely all the time because we recognize that there are risks for gun ownership. And 
I wouldn't mind having a personalized gun in my home. Uh, I think it would be a nice way to have access to a firearm um, that could only work for me or only work for my husband. But at the end of the day, you know, a safely stored firearm may be just as effective as a personalized gun uh, if I'm taking all the steps I need to to ensure that only an authorized user can gain access. Um, so we're based in Brooklyn, and I don't know a lot of gun owners here or any gun owners here personally. I'm wondering what or if there's anything that you wish that folks who weren't gun owners um, understood about gun owners to more effectively have a conversation about gun safety in the U.S.? Sure. I think there are a couple of things. So first of all, uh, gun owners are not a monolith, right? There are lots of different reasons why people own guns. Um, Some may own them for hunting, some for sport shooting, and some may own them for self-defense. But recognizing that not all gun owners think alike and support the same policies is really important. Um, And also it would be, I think, a really uh, important baseline for initiating a conversation for folks who don't own guns but are interested in talking about reasonable policy to do a little bit of education for themselves. Now, I don't mean that people should go out and buy guns because gun ownership isn't for everyone. And I don't mean that everyone needs to go out at a range or even take a gun safety course, but simply learning about the differences between a semi-automatic and an automatic firearm. What's the difference between a bolt or a lever action rifle and a semi-automatic rifle? Some basic elements of guns uh, that often come up in the conversation where if you sort of talk about, oh, this is, um, you know, some kind of firearm or some feature that can signal to a gun owner who may want to engage in conversation that you don't sort of haven't educated yourself on what these things are. And that can be a conversation killer. Um, The other thing, the last thing I'll say is when we're talking about policy, for example, it helps to get really specific. If you ask people, do you support gun control? We get pretty low levels of support. But if you ask people really specific policies, like, do you think everyone should get a background check every time they buy a gun? We see almost 90% support. Um, Do you think uh, family members should be allowed to petition the court to temporarily remove firearms from someone who's at risk of harming themselves or others? We get 80% support. Um, And many of these policies have very little differences in support between gun owners and non-gun owners. And so if we can get down, you know, the devil's in the details, if we can get into some of these specifics, I think that's a more productive conversation. I think one of the broad brush things that we hear thrown around a lot is like we should ban all assault weapons. Why do we have these in this country at all? Um, What do you think about that statement? I think it's going to be challenging to ban assault weapons, whether we're talking about rifles or or handguns that may fall into that category. Uh, One of the challenges in the constitutionality of laws is whether a gun is in sort of common use at the time. And I think we've reached a point since the lapse of the federal assault weapons ban that many of these guns are now in common use. Uh, The other challenge is that a big reason we probably didn't see a lot of effect of the federal assault weapons ban was that it was too easy for gun manufacturers to make one change to the design of the gun, leave off one feature, and then that gun was no longer subject to the ban 
And they could then sell that feature as an aftermarket accessory that the gun owner could buy and put on. So there, there are some loopholes. Um, and I think it's going to be challenging to have an effective ban of those firearms. What I do think we should do are, are two things. We should think about limiting magazine size. Uh, it's a lot harder to sort of modify a magazine. It, it either holds the certain number of bullets or it doesn't. And we, we are starting to see that that may be an effective policy to limit the casualties in mass shootings. Additionally, I think we need perhaps a tiered gun licensing system. So if you want to buy a revolver or a bolt or lever action rifle, perhaps you get one type of license. If you want to buy semi-automatic pistols or semi-automatic rifles, perhaps you need to go through a little bit more rigorous process um, to get another type of license. You think about what we do for cars, right? You want to drive a car or a truck, you know, a little passenger truck, you get a regular license. If you want to drive a motorcycle or a big rig, right, you go through different training and you get a different kind of license just to make sure that people who have no experience driving a motorcycle are not on the road and putting themselves and others at risk. And I think the same logic can apply to regulating uh, potentially higher lethality uh, firearms. Um, Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciated it. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much. We're going to take one final quick break, and then Aaron Mack will join me for Don't Close My Tabs, where we'll talk about the best things we saw on the web this week. Okay, it's time for Don't Close My Tabs. Joining me now is my colleague Aaron Mack, who will be hosting the show next week. Hi, Aaron. Hey, Shannon. Um, so we're going to start off with my tab for this week. It's kind of related to the rest of our episode. Um, it's a podcast called Factually with Adam Conover. And a recent episode is titled The Truth About Violent Video Games, They Don't Cause Violence um, with Dr. Patrick Markey. And Adam Conover is a comedian that does a lot of like kind of educational type programming. Um, I really enjoy his work in general, but this episode was particularly of interest to me because I grew up in a household where, you know, my parents were Quaker. Um, We weren't allowed to play violent video games or even just like run around and fake shoot each other or anything that kids (laughs) do um, because they had this very deeply held belief that, you know, that kind of stuff is sort of what's linked to the larger violence in our culture. Um, And in this episode, Adam talks to Dr. Markey, who is a professor of psychology at Villanova University, and he does a lot of research into whether uh, violent video games are actually linked to real-world violence. The short answer is that they're not. And in fact, the release of new video games uh, that feature a lot of violence is linked, in fact, to a decrease in violent crimes. And so it was just a really fascinating episode and continued to make me think hard about what could actually change the gun problem that we have here. Yeah, it's, uh, it was interesting. I, I heard maybe the first half of the podcast. Um, did they find out what was leading to the lower rates in crime uh, with the video games? Was that like a just a correlation or is that some causal link? They think that there might be a causal link. I don't think that they have anything totally conclusive on that, but his working theory right now is that um, folks who would be out committing crimes are 
just instead inside playing a video game or in a nice air-conditioned movie theater hanging out there instead of, um, you know, bumping into each other and getting into fights. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, Yeah, I think what's interesting about the video game debate kind of related to that is it it does seem to... uh, there does seem to be an issue with addiction. Like, you know, there's a lot of young men who don't go out and get jobs because they're home all the time playing video games. Obviously, it's not just the video games that are uh, at fault there. But, yeah, I guess when you're just not doing anything, you're not going to get into, like, violent uh, conflicts either. I think it's hard because, like, taking a violent video game away from your child is, like, a concrete thing that you can do in response to these very scary kind of random events. Mm-hmm. And in a country where it's so hard to make any kind of like larger policy change, you just reach for the one thing that you can control or like one of the few things that you can control and say, OK, maybe this will fix it. And I think that's what's happening um, to go back to the topic of the interview in our episode with smart guns. We have presidential candidates saying maybe smart guns will help. Let's my platform is now going to include smart guns um, when researchers show that it's not quite so simple as giving everybody a smart gun. Um, we just are running out of options of, of what to do. Yeah, that's interesting. It does seem like a very easy fix to just limit your children's media consumption and disseminate these like fancy guns. Um, if only it were so simple. <laughs> right. So what's your tab for this week? Uh, my tab this week are these just unbelievably popular social media stars who run uh, YouTube and TikTok channels focused on cooking in rural China. Um, so some of the most popular are Dian Xi Xiaoge, which is a channel with almost 3 million followers, which features a woman in Yunnan province cooking traditional dishes in her pretty modest cottage. Um, her videos regularly get tens of millions of views, which is crazy because she only started posting like last year. Um, yeah, it's, it's, I don't know how she's getting these numbers. Um, there's also another called uh, Lidza T, who has more than 5.5 million subscribers. Um, her channels feature like similar cooking and craft videos set in rural Sichuan. And uh, th- these videos are just extremely serene. It's, it's kind of easy to see why they would be so popular. Um, they basically just follow these women as they go harvest ingredients in the farmland and cook them using these like wood fire stoves. Uh, they barely talk. It's mostly just like the sounds of like chopping and cooking and very calming flute and zither music. Uh, but one of the mysteries about these channels, though, is that China actually censors YouTube on the mainland. So it's unclear how these stars are getting their like super popular videos onto this platform. Uh, they also seem to have access to extremely sophisticated video production technology, despite what appears to be a fairly modest way of life uh, in rural China without any access to electricity or anything like that. Um, some people online have speculated that they could be backed by the Chinese government to like promote rural cultures, but it's kind of impossible to tell. But anyways, it's extremely calming um, to watch through them. I- I'd highly recommend them even if they turn out to be like government propaganda or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Um, is there a particular time of day when you watch them? Like, is this good, like, kind of background working music? I'm also sort of imagining it as, like, a pre-bedtime thing that is, like, sort of soothing to have on in the background. Yeah, exactly. I I feel like most of my tabs over the course of this show have just been, like, calming things I watch before bed or, like, (laughs) when I don't, when I should be working. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's super relaxing. It's just the kind of thing, it's almost like... ASMR-esque. It's just like pleasant sounds to like nice lighting and nice scenery. 
that kind of calming uh, entertainment. We certainly need more of that from the internet. So I'm glad you're on this like micro beat on tops <laughs> of finding things to chill us out. Right. Yeah. Just it's calming YouTube videos. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's too much out there that's stressful. Mm-hmm, exactly. Especially YouTube. Uh, oh, God. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what are the like recommended viewing things um, that show up next to these videos? Is it more calm stuff or are you like at risk for being radicalized? I mean, I get like, so I was watching this one where they were basically like making uh, I think pig liver and all the recommended ones were like dressmaking. So, I mean, yeah, it'll get you into tailoring, I guess, but I don't think it'll radicalize you in any way. I feel like I need to get into tailoring. That sounds yeah, like a nice really recommendation. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Aaron. Yeah, no problem. All right, that's our show. You can email us at ifthen at slate.com. Send us your tech questions, show and guest suggestions, or just say hi. Thanks again to our guest, Cassandra Cafasi. And thanks to everyone who has left us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you listen on. We really appreciate your time. If Then is a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. If you want more of Slate's tech coverage, sign up for the Future Tense newsletter. Every week, you'll get news and commentary on how tech advances are changing the world in ways small and large. Sign up at slate.com slash future news. Our producer is Cameron Drews. Thanks also to Melissa Kaplan, who engineered for us in D.C. today. We'll see you next week.